Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Rebecca Patterson has always sought out new career challenges, willing to take risks in the process. Amidst the Asian financial crisis in 1997, Rebecca was hired into its strategist position within the asset management side of J.P. Morgan, giving her early exposure to one of those 100-year market storm events that seems to actually happen every 10 years. She began building out a macro data-driven framework that was underpinned by the vast array of complex linkages between the economy and markets. In 2012, she joined Bessemer Trust, serving as the CIO and overseeing $85 billion of client assets. At the heart of our conversation is uncertainty, a reality in markets that Rebecca has considerable respect for. In this context, she reviews her risk management process going into the 2016 shock election in the U.S. and the detailed work her team did to game out a number of scenarios and their potential market impacts. We shift to Rebecca's time spent at Bridgewater Associates, where she served as the firm's chief investment strategist until recently, and learn about her assessment of the U.S. macro climate. Here, Rebecca reviews the asset price damage that occurred in 2022 due to the fast rise in real rates and expresses a cautionary view on risk markets. On her mind is the potential that implied Fed cuts do not materialize as currently suggested by the inverted yield curve. While the big picture, one in which overall growth is decelerating and monetary policy remains tight, leaves her cautious, Rebecca does see potential opportunities on the long side in emerging market debt, where countries like Brazil are close to done with their monetary policy hiking cycles. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Rebecca Patterson. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Rebecca Patterson. She was, until recently, the chief investment strategist at Bridgewater, also has held the role of chief investment officer at Bessemer, where she oversaw $85 billion in client assets, and before that, had a chief investment strategist role in the asset management arm of J.P. Morgan. Rebecca, it's really great to catch up, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange. Oh, thanks, Dean. It's great to talk to you today. First, a thank you to you because I'm starting to prepare for my MacroMinds charity event. So we're going to host it on June 7th in New York City. And you were very generous in filling in on very short notice and gave what I thought was a very compelling overview of the risks that you saw in markets. So this was May of 2022. And even though that seems recently, I was just looking back at the federal funds target and it was 87 basis points at the time, the midpoint. So we've had quite a bit of travel just from that presentation that you did at the conference in May of 22 and where we are now. So lots has changed. And that's one of the themes I want to use to have this conversation with you is just some of your evaluation and assessment of change. So let's first have you tell us a little bit more about your background. You came into the industry from what I would say is a unique background. So I'd love for you to talk about your early days just in terms of journalism and then how you came about this wonderful world of pie finance. You're right. I mean, if you think about macro minds versus today, it goes to the famous line, there are weeks when a decade happens. And this has definitely been one of those periods. 
and change is a great theme, both for our conversation today and in a way to describe me. I've been someone who's embraced change throughout my career, and I think, at least so far, it's served me really well. But you mentioned journalism. I started out my professional life as a journalist, initially covering politics in Washington and then moving on to policy, economics, and markets in New York and London. I had to get up learning curves very quickly on different topics. I had to be able to differentiate what was news and what was noise. And of course, I had to be able to communicate quickly and clearly. And those are skills I still use every single day as a researcher and an investor. And Dean, if I can share one really quick, fun story, because it'll just bring this to life. When I was based in London in the mid-1990s, I had to travel over to Brussels frequently for something we called ECOFINS, which just means the economic and finance ministers' regular meetings as they were getting ready to start the monetary union. And you would have to go to the different countries' press conferences. And Italy was the trickiest, and I spoke a little Italian, so I got that honor I had to mentally translate from Italian, and back then, Italian lira, into English and dollars and dictate a story real time on my huge brick cell phone to an editor sitting in London that would immediately go out on newswires. So I had no room to make mistakes. I had to think very quickly and almost compose what I wanted to say in my head. It taught me to be able to think on my feet and think very quickly and figure out what's the most important point? What is the thing I'm trying to get across? Again, I think journalism really helped me learn a lot of skills that are sort of a secret weapon for me today. So interesting. And I guess chat GPT wasn't around at that time. (laughs) Oh my, would have saved so much time. Yes. Walk us through the process through which the journalism skills were utilized into a career in the investment industry. I know you spent some time before Bessemer at at J.P. Morgan. Tell us about how that got started. So I was based with Dow Jones writing for the Newswire and for the Wall Street Journal in London when I got a call from the head of investment bank currency and precious metals research at J.P. Morgan saying, hey, we read your stuff and we think you should work here. And at the time I said, I don't know about that. I barely balanced my checkbook. And they said, no, you know more than you realize, and we'll teach you the rest. And so I said, what the heck? You only go through life once. Let's try. So I joined the investment bank in September 1997. Now, Dean, I am sure you recall what the world was like just then. Indeed. I don't know if we're exactly the same age, but you've been around. So I jumped in the deep end. I had in my first year at JP Morgan, the Asian crisis, the Russian ruble devaluation, crazy and volatility. And it was exhausting, but it was amazing learning. And again, the journalism background helped because I had to synthesize and move very quickly to get through everything. It wasn't a steep learning curve, Dean. It was a vertical learning curve that first year. I mean, just in terms of FX crisis events, that period in 97 was really a doozy. I read Tim Geithner's biography on just crisis events, firefighting, a lot of reflection on the GFC. But he also spent a lot of time going through the IMF's interventions in that Thai bot and the Hong Kong Monetary Fund. I mean, there was just a lot there. I know that ultimately the VIX got to as high as 38, I want to say in October of 97. So you hit the ground running in that new seat. There was another lesson I got out of that period I transferred from London to J.P. Morgan Singapore office, still doing foreign exchange and now also fixed income research. 
not too far after that. So it was around 1999. And at that point, I had a whopping two, three years of finance experience under my belt. I thought I knew everything. And my first trade recommendation in Singapore was something about the Philippine peso. And it was abysmally wrong. What it taught me very quickly, and I'm glad I learned quickly, but they say fail fast and well, was that there were different variables that had different weights in the different economies. What drove the Deutschmark or the French franc was very different than what drove the Malaysian ringgit or the Philippine peso. In Philippines, the remittance flows mattered a lot. We didn't think about remittance as much in Europe. The fiscal deficit dynamics, the political dynamics mattered more. It was a good lesson for me not to assume that the world is truly flat in that way, that yes, the economic linkages and logic are the same globally, but the weights you give each of them is going to depend a lot on where you are. You spent a number of years at J.P. Morgan, and you wound up taking a role at Bessemer and rose to be the chief investment officer. So that's not a small position of responsibility. Love to learn a little bit more about your time there and I'm sure that's going to overlap with some of the granddaddy of them all vol events like the global financial crisis. So tell us a little bit more about the time at Bessemer, and then we'll transition to your time at Bridgewater. I have to step back into JP Morgan for a minute because I had been in research for about a decade and was looking for my next step. And Mary Erdos at the time suggested that I try running the private bank's global currency and commodity trading desk. And I had recommended trades, but I had never run a trading desk before. But again, I thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? I get fired. I figure out another path. So I decided to take a chance. And that was 2008. So another interesting moment to try something new, but again, an incredible learning experience. Probably most importantly, I knew I liked managing money. I liked owning risk. And I think that's what set me up for that position at Bessemer Trust when that came along in 2012. I knew I wanted to be a CIO. And when the Bessemer opportunity came around, I absolutely couldn't say no. Bessemer was so interesting because I went from this huge global company with offices in dozens of countries to a large multifamily office, as you said, about $85 billion AUM, but largely in the United States and dealing with high net worth families primarily and instead of institutions, central banks, sovereign wealth funds, so different client mix. And what was interesting to me about that is that, of course, you have a spectrum of wealth out there, but a lot of the wealth today really invests more like an endowment or a foundation. A lot of these folks are very barbelled, so they're going to have cash and fixed income, and then they're going to have quite a bit of exposure to private assets. And really using that illiquidity premium to try to get higher total return and taking advantage of the muted accounting volatility that privates offer them and a lot of customizations. It was a different set of challenges for those investors, but fascinating and really a lot of fun. I loved the team. I'd say the other learning I got at Bessemer, we did about half of the management ourselves internally And we had a number of terrific fixed income and equity teams. And we'd get together formally at least once a week and talk about what we were all seeing in our different portfolios. I had always been a top-down person, and I knew this, but it became even more evident to me in that time period how much you get from the bottom up. 
So hearing someone talk about a position they have in a certain stock or they just visit a company, the micro informs the macro. And so I spend a lot of time today, even though I don't pick stocks, looking at earnings reports, looking at what company executives are saying, because it's another input to my macro mosaic, if you will, that helps me build confidence that I'm seeing the world correctly. Well, as you talk about your time at Bessemer and the firm's clients, wealthy individuals, a lot of the job there, I can imagine, is real risk management. These folks are wealthy and they clearly want their wealth to compound, but it's about keeping it too. And that, to me, suggests being as long-term as you can. And so as you've described some of your career path here, you started with 97. That's the FX crisis of Asian contagion. 98 is LTCM. Got a giant tech bubble in there that comes undone, the GFC. And then even as you talk about 2012, I'm thinking about the U.S. debt ceiling. We'll have to circle back to that one (laughs) at the end of the call. But that was a 2011 event, the Eurozone sovereign crisis, the fiscal cliff in 2012. So my question is just around staying inside the boat, staying invested, even amidst what can really be some scary episodic volatility. What is the balance for you there in staying long-term, but appreciating that sometimes markets really can come undone? Fully agree. You generally want to stay invested because if you try to time getting out and getting in completely black and white, you're probably going to fail and you're going to be looking at a lot more volatility in your returns over time. So you're not compounding them as well. So you want to try to reduce the volatility along the way to get the highest compounded return over time. And I would try to make that point to clients at Bessemer Trust by saying, okay, we could have two return streams over 10 years. One return stream gets, I'm making it up 5% a year each year and has an average annual return of 5%. The other one, you have some blowout years, you have some bad years, same average return at the end of the period. The boring one, is going to have so much more total wealth creation that you could use that money to buy a nice extra house for your grandkids or whatever. I mean, it's real money. And so you can show that to them, but human nature is such that even if they buy it, even if they know they should be long-term, a lot of people will still look at a bad week in the market or a bad month and say, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? You got to get out. It's managing positions at the margin, managing your risk, but not taking steps that are so drastic that you're likely to actually do more harm than good because you're not allowing yourself to compound. Of course, we've seen these bursts of volatility that come and go. Oftentimes, these vol events are put to bed by some intervention by the Fed, could be the ECB during those endless emergency crisis meetings that occurred on Sunday nights. So of course, you've really got to watch the central banks pretty closely. So that'll be a good topic for us to get your reflections on. So tell us a little bit more about Bessemer and then the transition to the role as chief investment strategist at Bridgewater. Another thing that I really appreciated at Bessemer was that it was an opportunity for me to get a lot deeper into alternatives. So most of my career at JP Morgan, I was focused on liquid markets and I would deal with alternative clients but I wasn't focused on trading alternatives. And at Bessemer, part of our portfolio was private assets and alternatives, including hedge funds. We weren't doing it internally. We'd be doing due diligence and selecting managers. 
it was a different corner of the universe that I got to learn and really appreciated getting to do that. I think in part to see the array of opportunities out there. Are you going for absolute return? Are you trying to juice your returns? Are you really getting what you pay for? Looking at style drift. And then, of course, with private, the dispersion in returns within the universe and the importance of really getting those top decile managers. The other thing, though, that we try to do for our clients was think about the J-curve of private assets, that interim period at the beginning where you're committing capital, but you're not getting a return yet. And so how could we mitigate that? And looking at liquid investment overlays that we could put into the portfolio that were extremely low risk, but would be able to reduce that drawdown, if you will, the beginning of a private investment shelf life. And so it was fun trying to be innovative and find ways to help our clients throughout the different types of investments they had there. And I really appreciated Bessemer giving me quite a lot of autonomy whether it was to do things like overlays on our private investment or launch new strategies. We had a great quant team. And so we were able to do some pretty cool, what I call quantum mental strategies around sustainability or dividends. We had a lot of fun. We got to build a lot. You mentioned what I guess I would call a barbell approach of having some portion of the portfolio stuck in assets that don't have a lot of dispersion of outcomes and low return, but low risk. So you said 5%. And then another part of the portfolio that maybe can be thought a little bit more in the context of optionality, where you get some big home runs, maybe some losses as well, but it's a higher return, higher risk undertaking. But the 5% part I wanted to come back to, because while we're back there, at least on the short rate, we're getting close to 5%. There was a lengthy period there, really globally, where short rates and even long rates got incredibly low. The US, you had a 10-year, I'm thinking post-Brexit, we were down at 130 or so, so incredibly low term premium. And so what were the challenges in manufacturing yield? The safe part of the barbell part of the portfolio really wasn't yielding 5%. I'm just curious if you can tell us about some of the challenges and opportunities that came about during that exceptionally low-yield environment? When I was talking about 5%, just for clarity's sake, I was just talking about a hypothetical portfolio and how one with the same boring return every year actually did better over time than one with that 5% average annual return, but more volatility along the way. So I wasn't saying 5% was what we would necessarily be assuming to get with the safe part of the portfolio. To your point, in recent years, getting 5% on your liquid, boring, fixed income or cash would have been a miracle. But the point still stands. We've gone through a period of time where you were really looking to pick up pennies to do anything you could to get a better return on that part of your portfolio. And we know what happened as a result. Investors broadly, whether we're talking about high net worth or institutional, were going out the risk curve because they needed to get a certain total return for whatever their goals were. And that got people into a greater amount of illiquid or giving up credit quality that creates more risk in the portfolios. So then they don't have as much balance when we have a down period like we had last year. What would we try to do about it? One thing we did at Bessemer that became a staple part of our portfolio was a, I don't want to call it minimum vol because there are so many 
strategies out there that call themselves minvolic, and a lot of them have very different flavors and details. But we did have a strategy that tried to reduce volatility within the portfolio through the construction of the portfolio. And it would do very, very well in these low growth, low yielding periods. It would underperform as stocks were rallying hard. But in a period where you kind of range bound markets, slow growth, this was something that would get you towards your return goal without having a lot of volatility. And it would be complementary to the fixed income, but not taking that credit risk. So that was one thing we did, which definitely helped us for a number of those years. And then again, people pushing out the risk curve into private, as long as you have access to really strong managers, I think you can get paid for that illiquidity premium. What worries me is a lot of investors out there who don't have access are too small or don't have the relationships. And then they're probably paying high fees and giving up liquidity and getting returns that they could get in the public markets. And so we were fortunate at Bessemer that we had access to, I think, some really tremendous managers. But it's definitely a broad move. And today, I'm curious to see as we get more markdowns on valuations from private over the course of this year, if that changes people's thinking at all about how much exposure they want. I think it's too early to know, but it's something I'm interested to watch this year. Well, before we transition to talk a little bit more about your time at Bridgewater, I'd love for you just to reflect back on some events of consequence in markets. If you were to do a word cloud of the alpha exchange, I'm betting (laughs) volatility would be high on the list. It would be a big cloud. So we talk a lot about volatility. And at least for me, I'm kind of a student of market risk events. I think that they're fascinating because you learn the most when things break down. Those are indelibly important learning experience. And oftentimes they bring to life pockets of inconsistencies in our thinking or holes in our risk management process. I'm just wondering if you can reflect back on an event of material consequence that has stayed with you, that you think about a lot in terms of your orientation for risk these days. As you look back, what's been most formative for you? Oh, boy. Well, they all were formative in different ways. I think one more recently, the election of Donald Trump as president is a good one because I had enough experience at that point that as we were getting closer to the election and the polls were suggesting Hillary Clinton was going to win hands down. And I just said, yeah, but what if she doesn't? And I had been fortunate enough over the last couple of decades to get to know former Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin. And one thing Bob always talks about is that life is about probabilities. There's no black and white. And I take that to heart. I totally agree with that. So when I'm investing, I always start with my base case. And then I think about, okay, what could make me wrong? What are the alternative scenarios? What's my conviction? How much do I believe my base case will be right? And then think about how much do I get hurt if I'm wrong? And the exposure should reflect all of that. So when we think about the election, and yes, Hillary Clinton's expected to win. And We kind of have an idea of how markets would perform in the near term if she did win. But what if Trump wins? And then let's get cute. What if we don't have a winner? What if we have a swinging Chad situation where it takes weeks to decide who the winner is? And so I sat down with my investment team and I said, I want each of you to sketch out for your asset classes and your portfolios what you think will happen if this occurs. 
each scenario. And then we talked through it and we agreed on steps we would take on different outcomes. And look, at Bessemer, we were taking medium and longer term views. We were not day traders, but this was a catalyst. This was a big event and it had the potential to do a lot to markets. And so we wanted to be ready. We knew we needed to protect our clients' money. And so the night of the election, the senior team, we were on the phone at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and when it was clear that Donald Trump was going to win, we had that scenario ready. And so we put trades on that night, and they did help us. They helped our portfolio quite meaningfully in the short run, and then we took it from there. I also, knowing this could happen, I had a board meeting the day after the election, And so I literally built two board decks, one with Donald Trump, one with Hillary. I didn't do a no winner because I just couldn't face that possibility that quickly. But I think the takeaway to me, though, is think in scenarios, think in probabilities. If we have a debt ceiling standoff again later this year, you mentioned it earlier, Dean, what are the scenarios if we get another downgrade in the U.S.? If bond funds that have requirements that they can only own AAA bonds and the U.S. is no longer AAA. What kind of flows do we see? In 2011, the bond market rallied. People went to bonds as a safe haven asset even after the event. Equities were down about 20% over a course of several weeks. The dollar rallied. So do we see a similar reaction or a different one? What would cause it? And so I think doing that scenario planning early into these things, having game plans, That's really what I take away from living through all these crises. Plan ahead. You mentioned the debt ceiling from 2011, and that was really formative for me. Just from a vol standpoint, there were four straight days where the S&P had a 4% move, two up, two down, and I think one of them was a down 6%. So that was chaos. It was hard to disentangle entirely how much of that was the Eurozone crisis. We also got a terrible PMI number in early August. So always hard to know, but the debt ceiling couldn't have helped. (laughs) And as you said, of course, the U.S. is on the brink of defaults, so the bond market rallies ferociously. (laughs) It's a funny thing. I'm really glad you mentioned or that you talked about the Trump election as a learning experience. That's not one that comes up, but that was really interesting. And you had some very definitive market moves. I want to say real rates went up about 100 basis points in the maybe month after the market got settled in. And versus the big shock higher in real rates, which was destructive to equity prices in 2022, this was actually pretty positive. Who would have thunk it? 2017 was a left tail event of low vol. So Donald Trump wins. And who would have thought we would have had the lowest realized vol in the S&P for 50 years, right? (laughs) These things are so difficult. Walk us through the transition. So you left a extremely large role at Bessemer to take on another extremely large and prominent role at Bridgewater. I'd love to learn more about that and your time there. I have, for a lot of my career, tried to be supportive of the Federal Reserve. I think it's an incredibly important institution, and I'm always honored to be helpful for them. And At this time, I was on the New York Fed's Investor Advisory Committee, and Ray was on it as well. And this group would get together several times a year, and the New York Fed would give us topics in advance. We had to take turns presenting to each other. So this would be Fed officials, but also other senior investors, generally by side. And I think Ray, if I had to guess, was probably 
impressed that I held my own against the rest of the folks around the table. And I seemed to know my stuff. And at a certain point, he came to me and said, hey, would love to have you come meet the rest of the gang and think about joining us. And fast forward probably a year, that process, and I did my homework. I knew I was taking a risk, leaving a job I really enjoyed, clients I loved for something very unknown. But I also thought, what an amazing challenge this will be, and what a great learning experience this will be. So I joined Bridgewater. (laughs) Here's my timing. I think people should just trade on the back of when I change jobs. I was going to say. You're going to see a pattern here. You got a long VIX future strategy here or something. (laughs) (laughs) When I start new jobs, things happen. I joined Bridgewater in late January 2020. Oh, my goodness. I had just finished my onboarding process, and I think I had written my first research note, and then COVID hit, and we were sent home for the next basically year or so. So it was an amazing way to start my time at an amazing firm. And everyone was so busy, hands on deck, trying to make sure we understood the ripple effects from China to Italy to the U.S. What does it mean for the economy? What will the policy response be, et cetera? And I didn't have enough knowledge, really, of how we invested on my first month to be able to help much with the portfolio. So I just looked around and said, okay, what needs to get done? And just grabbed it. So Bridgewater publishes five, six research notes a week which is very unusual for a hedge fund, even just an asset manager. I had written for 30 years, so I said, I can do this. So I would just start writing research notes with colleagues to go out to our clients to explain what we saw, what was going on, how we were interpreting it. We had all these young people who had just joined the firm and someone needed to train them. So I said, okay, I can do that. I just grabbed whatever I could and tried to help row the boat. And then once the initial wave the initial shock of the pandemic had flowed through and we started getting the policy response. And there was more time for other colleagues to be able to work with me and get me up the curve on what is Bridgewater. I think what I reflect on after being there for three years, probably two or three things. One was just the rigor of the research. I got there thinking I was a pretty good researcher, but it's just nothing like anything else I've seen there. You have a theory and someone says, why? And then you explain your logic and they say, yeah, but why? And it's it's like talking to a six-year-old who never stops asking why. So you have to go deeper and deeper and deeper to make sure you're not missing something. When we study historical trends, we won't go back 10 years or 20 years. We'll go back 100 years. We don't look at correlations. We look at what's the logic? What are the economic linkages that drive correlations? So that was amazing. And then the clients were amazing. You're dealing with some of the largest institutional investors around the world, and they have some really interesting challenges. And so working with them to try to help solve those challenges, advise them, partner with them, that was a tremendous responsibility and something I really enjoyed doing. It was a great time. But I think, Dean, at the end of three years, I looked at myself and said, okay, systematic investing, I've gotten to experience it. I absolutely get the logic behind it, but I'm a discretionary investor. And it's something I had to see to learn about myself. It's kind of like, you know, you love driving cars, but are you Formula One or NASCAR? You don't know until you get behind the wheel. And I think after three years at a systematic investment firm, I knew that while I got it and I liked it, 
my passion is more discretionary. And so I decided that I would part and figure out my next home. And so that's where I am now. But I have no regrets at all. It was a great experience. And I think every new thing I've done over my career has just made me a better professional in person. I'm excited. I'm excited about whatever I land next. But for sure, wherever I land next, mark the date. Something crazy will happen in the market. (laughs) Exactly. We'll see if that gets priced into the volatility curve. (laughs) Well, you mentioned the rigor with which Bridgewater dives in into research. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about that in the context of COVID. I wanted to just share a discussion I had with another podcast guest, Andy Constant, who worked under Ray for a period of time before you were there. Andy now runs a firm called Damp Spring Advisors. He's got a long background in derivatives and convertibles. And there was a particular incident in the very long dated vol markets in the S&P. This occurred right after the flash crash in 2010. And it was a true market dislocation. Warren Buffett was short, just an absolute giant size of very long dated put options under this premise that he could just sell these puts, bank the premium, hold it, never post mark to market collateral because he was AAA. And that in 10 years with a very, very high degree of likelihood, the S&P was going to be higher than his put strike. And he got paid a very high level of implied vol. So there was this kerfuffle in the markets and there was a narrative that Buffett was going to be unwinding these puts because he was going to have to post mark-to-market collateral. And so long-dated volatility went absolutely sky high. And so Andy Constant presented this trade at Bridgewater as the best trade he'd ever seen. And frankly, it was one of the best trades I'd ever seen as well. But Andy said that the rigor with which Bridgewater pushed back on the idea and just kept going another layer deeper in terms of back test, in terms of understanding who the players, and it really stayed with him, just that sense of exhausting every (laughs) possible angle to researching it. So I thought, I just wanted to share that because it's obviously consistent with what you've presented. Rebecca, tell us just a little bit more about COVID in terms of the market crisis and how Bridgewater, just again, these are scary, scary events for clients. And even if you think help is coming from the Fed, from the fiscal side, that drawdown was one of the most outrageous of all time. Reflect back on that, those scary two months or so in markets from a risk management standpoint. I think that the biggest scary part of that was when COVID first started, no one knew how bad it was or how bad it would get. We didn't know how many people would die. We didn't know how long it would be with us. We didn't know how long it would take to get a vaccine. And so I think more than just the shock of it was the huge degree of uncertainty investors had to face. How can you make a decision if you don't know where you're headed? And to me, it is somewhat analogous to 2008 when we were getting to that real trough point and we weren't sure if the U.S. financial system would actually survive it. There was that level of uncertainty. I think to me, they're similar in that sense. I remember a few days on the trading floor of JP Morgan that reminded me of a few days at Bridgewater when that first was evolving. But one thing history taught us is that policymakers will respond 
if the economy is going off a cliff, we are going to get a response. The question in our minds was, what kind of response? How big? How quickly? And then will it be enough? Do they have enough ammunition to do what's needed? And what was so interesting about COVID is that, frankly, central banks didn't have enough by themselves. Rates, as you said, going into COVID were so low already. And the Fed wasn't going to go negative with rates. And QE could help, but how much? And they rolled out other programs, but it was clear that we were going to need a fiscal lever as well. And in the end, I think the fiscal lever was as, if not more important than the monetary lever in terms of turning things around. And of course, what it translated to in the subsequent year was the multi-decade high inflation that we got as these huge fiscal transfers to businesses, but especially households, led to a demand surge and people couldn't keep up with the demand, whether it was supply of goods, supply of labor, supply of homes. Demand was outstripping supply, and then we got inflation. And Bridgewater, while it didn't get every part of COVID right, for sure, one thing we did get very right was understanding that this inflation was not going to be transitory. Yes, supply chains were going to normalize. Yes, goods prices, used auto prices would come down. But we were looking at the tightest labor market literally in decades And wages were going to continue to get pressured higher from the service sector side of the economy. And so we believe that inflation would be more persistent and it would force the Fed to tighten a lot more than was getting priced in at the moment. And I personally, even outside of Bridgewater today, still have the view that the market is not correctly pricing the Fed's path from here. But we can come back to that. Well, one of the things that, again, I think you're pointing to that we perhaps learned is that the monetary side was not set up to provide much more in the terms of growth impetus. It certainly was there to backstop the system in March as even the U.S. government bond market was without the marginal capacity to bear risk. So the Fed had to step in there. But to really get the growth side going, it seemed like the fiscal aspect of things needed to kick into high gear. I wanted you to reflect on 2022. As you said, COVID sets us up for 2021 into 2022, the correlation between stock and bond prices for the year of 2022 is among the highest on record. I think you've got to go back decades to find something. Maybe it's the mid-80s you saw positive correlations in prices. Tell us about that, just in terms of managing the risk-free and then the risk side of the portfolio. It's to think about different environments, growth and inflation, which are going to be the biggest drivers, if you will, of the economic machine. And then make sure in each regime is growth stronger or weaker than expected. Is inflation higher or lower than expected? And if you put this in a matrix, you want to have exposures that are going to do well in each of those four buckets, growth, inflation up, growth up, inflation down, et cetera. And that is going to include equities and bonds. It's also going to include inflation-sensitive assets, commodities, for example. It's going to include inflation-linked debt. It's going to try to have enough balance that no matter what the surprises are, the portfolio is going to be okay. Now, what happened in 2022 is the one thing that beta can't diversify away which is an unexpected tightening in monetary conditions. So we had, as you said, a huge increase in the real rate 
all assets got hurt. Cash outperformed everything. And so there was nowhere to hide. Well, as we started our call, we talked a little bit about the Macromines Symposium and your presentation there, which I think was extremely spot on in terms of the risks that the market was facing. You talked about the extent to which you thought the Fed was behind. They turned out to be quite behind. And the market responded, as you said, just from a tightening of financial conditions. It's not good for asset prices. So here we are now approaching a 5% policy rate, but also with a pretty good inversion in the curve. So it's almost as if the market says, yeah, you'll stay up here for a little bit, but then cuts are coming. And so the equity market seems like it's on more stable footing. I'd love for you to frame out just the here and now of what you see. Maybe we can start with the outlook for U.S. assets and broaden it out just in terms of global assets. So what's prominent to you? What matters to you? What might the market be either overestimating or underestimating? Walk us through what's on your mind now. Let me get the punchline first, and then I'll back into the logic. The punchline for me, the big mispricing is what I just hinted at earlier. The market discounting, the Fed is going to switch from tightening to an easing cycle quickly. And between July or so this year and early next year, we're going to be looking at cuts. And Chairman Powell, just speaking today in Washington, D.C., at an economic club meeting, I believe, was saying that we're going to pause and we're going to sit up there and we don't see inflation getting back to 2% till next year. And so I keep asking myself, why is the market pricing in cuts, even if inflation is going to be above target? Do they really think the Fed would cut with inflation above target? And so I always look at history. And so the first thing I did was go back and say, okay, well, have they done that before? Am I forgetting something? And they have cut rates with inflation above target, but only a few times. So our sample size is not useful. And the main time they did it, that is interesting to look at, it was 2007, 2008. And the Fed was seeing enough data that a financial crisis was quickly escalating and was going to lead to a recession that they started easing even with inflation above target. And of course, inflation quickly went below. But before that, When the Fed was cutting with inflation above 2%, basically, it was before the Fed even had an explicit target. So Bernanke developed the Fed's 2% target in 2012. So we don't have a sample size to say there's a historical precedent for this. So I'm not buying that. And then could we get inflation coming down to two or below two faster than expected. To me, it's going to be about the job market and wages. There's different wage measures to look at. I like looking at the Atlanta Fed's wage tracker. It's currently telling us wage growth is still around 6%. There are some other measures, maybe a little more timely, that suggest we're somewhere closer to four or five. Either way, we need to get wages down quite a bit to get inflation down to target. And can we get wages down without seeing demand slow? And if we see demand slow, if we get more layoffs, then we're going to see earnings take a hit. For me, to see this immaculate disinflation, this quick pivot to a cycle, it seems very unlikely without higher unemployment and slower growth, which should be a drag. We'll see how bad a drag, but a drag on equities. 
we had this really quick sprint for the stock market and cyclical assets at the beginning of the year, I think in part because people were hoping for a soft landing. And I think the latest payroll report, even if it's a bit of an anomaly, it and recent wage data tell us that's still got a lot of work to do. I think that we probably get to 5% or so on the Fed funds, and then the Fed sits there for several months and does nothing and just watches. I think that tighter than expected liquidity conditions are going to be something that caps any upside for stocks. Maybe we're more in a range this year, but the little run we had in January, I would not expect that to be continuing with the risk to growth that probably is going to become reality as the Fed has to tighten more. In the raging bull market that emerged post-COVID, when the stimulus really started to kick in, there was a lot of dialogue in the markets about the long-duration profile of many of the assets that did especially well. Tech stocks are, quote, long-duration. And then those same stocks, because they're long-duration, suffered the most as rates came up. So at least that narrative was pretty prominent. I'd like to ask you about your views on the sensitivity of the U.S. economy to higher rates. We know that rates seem to push asset prices around. Low rates seem unambiguously good for asset prices. Maybe it's the consumption of carry trades and reaching out on the risk spectrum. But just in terms of the economic damage that might come from holding the short rate at, let's say, 5% for an extended period of time, we haven't done that in a long time. How should investors think about the economy impact of higher rates? Let me start with the tech stocks and the long duration stocks that you led off with. And I would even say we can take it into private assets a little bit, especially some of the VC, the venture capital, the startups. So you're right. The U.S. stock market over the last decade or so, as the tech sector has gotten to be a larger share of the index, and those are long-duration cash flows, it is very liquidity-sensitive. I believe the Bridgewater research was estimating that something like 40% of the U.S. market cap, or close to that, was liquidity-sensitive. So as the Fed raises rates faster than expected, more than expected, those stocks get hurt, and liquidity-sensitive assets in general. So that also would go to crypto, for example, would get hit. Recently, as expectations changed that maybe the Fed wouldn't have to do so much and we could have a soft landing, you saw this big rally in those stocks and those assets. Crypto had a huge ride in January. But then after the payrolls on Friday last week, and I argue even a little bit Powell's comments today, we're back to pricing in a terminal Fed funds at or slightly above 5%. And so that's getting discounted now. But the question is, if the Fed doesn't ease quickly and we don't get that super soft landing, what is that going to look like? To your question, the 5% cash rate, if it lingers, we're seeing a lot of money going into the short end of the curve now. You are getting better bond demand in January. But if I can get 4% or higher in cash, why do I need to bother with the Treasury right now? I'll just sit in cash and if stocks sell off, I have liquidity and I can deploy it at better levels. What's going to happen to the private markets if their cost of capital is going up? How much is that going to affect returns or is it such a slow moving thing that we're not going to feel it much for a while and so investors will keep piling in as they want to get into the latest vintage of X or Y? 
one thing that I'll be watching with interest is when the Congressional Budget Office comes out with its new set of forecasts, which should be soon, and it has to revise its expectations for the interest cost of our debt. The short-term rates going up, great for savers, love that I can own cash and get 4% or 5%. What is it going to do to our budget deficit and the dynamics there, especially with this current political environment, if our interest costs are going up that much? What are we going to have to pull back on to make the math work there? That's going to become, I think, a political conversation very quickly. It already is one with the debt ceiling, but this is just going to be another dimension onto it. I'm so glad you brought that up. And it's almost as if this has been the elephant in the room for so long that folks suggest that you're a sky is falling type if you even discuss it. But and look, the response to COVID was the right response in a lot of ways. It was an emergency. And that's what the fiscal side is there to do. But boy, we sure missed the reality that we were adding so much to the stock of debt at such low rates that the interest cost was probably sideways, even as we added so much to the stock of it. And now that those costs are higher, I do think it's going to create some very real conversations. You talked about just the short rate and holding it at a certain level. I'd love for you to talk to us about asset allocation, portfolio construction. There are some segments of the spectrum of assets that do better in higher rate environments. A lot of people talk about value as one area to try to focus on, to try to weather the storm of higher rates. What does a portfolio look like? If indeed we stay with the notion that you got to try to be as long-term as you can, you can't dart in and out of the market, but we also want to make positioning changes to the mix of assets that we have to weather the storm of potentially an extended period of higher rates. What does that stylistic portfolio look like in a world of a 5% short rate, maybe for a, a longer period of time than the market currently thinks? I start with a pretty simple, straightforward framework. I believe in the economic cycle. I don't think the cycle's dead. And I do think there is logic behind why different assets perform certain ways at different points in the cycle. And when I think about the cycle, I break it down into three main parts, growth, inflation, and policy. Obviously, there are other things that matter as well, but that's where I always start. And I start thinking about it globally, and then I look at it country by country. And that simple exercise, growth, inflation, policy, globally and country by country, gets me pretty far down the road in building a portfolio. It tells me how much I want in each asset and sub-asset. It tells me what countries I want, what currencies I want. It even can help me with sectors and a little bit with factors. And so when I think about the world today, and as we look ahead to 2023 and beyond, as Larry Summers said, I think last week or so, it was one of the hardest economies he ever remembered, which made me feel better. It is hard. I mean, with growth, the pandemic and all the policies that followed means that where we are in the cycle today just isn't as clear as we might like or have seen in the past. Growth is moderating in the U.S., although definitely more in some parts of the economy than the other. But growth is picking up in China, and it's not slowing as much as feared in Europe. So if you think about it globally, yes, the U.S. is the biggest economy in the world, but if we have this positive offset from China, and Europe is getting bad slower, you have to think about all of that together. So my base case putting that together is that we're in a pause 
in what's still probably a decelerating late cycle trend. So that's my growth view. We're late cycle. We're going towards probably a mild recession, in my opinion. And then on inflation and policy, obviously, we're seeing inflation decelerating. But I think it's also important to note the level of inflation. We keep talking about the rate of inflation, but the fact that inflation is no longer eight, now it's six or five, still rising, just rising at a slower rate. So what you and I are paying for our kale salad or whatever when we're going to the grocery store is still expensive and getting more expensive just at a slower rate. And I think that is still a challenge for many consumers and for inputs for businesses. And I think all of that, both the levels and the changes, it does lead me to believe we still have more monetary policy tightening ahead of us, even if it's going at a slower rate. And we don't want to forget as well, we also have effectively global QT, quantitative tightening this time around. You know, the Fed in San Francisco has a proxy rate where it includes quantitative tightening with the Fed funds, and it implies a rate today of closer to 6%, so even more restrictive. And I think that's going to be with us for a while. Now, there's a final policy piece I'd consider, which is fiscal. And in the pandemic, as we discussed earlier, it was as, if not more important than monetary policy. But today, outside of China, we're not seeing large fiscal impulses in either direction. When I put all this together, overall growth decelerating, monetary policy still tight, inflation coming down, but from high levels, I think the relative big deal is the monetary policy and the Fed being in a place where it can pause later this year, but not cut without inflation back to target or below. So the market has got a mispricing there. And to me, that translates into a pretty cautious stance on equities. Again, a lot of it depends on is this a shallow recession or a deep one? If we have a growth slowdown, people are going to look for organic growers, and that can be a support for things like tech stocks, which could offset some of the liquidity hit they're taking. But I don't have a strong view on that. But I think we will get the demand slowdown the Fed needs, and that's going to weigh on earnings. Does that mean I'd buy bonds? I'd be open to treasuries, but frankly, I'm just as happy to have exposure to cash at 4 or 5% and look to deploy it when we see more equity weakness. Dean, one area that I think is interesting to keep an eye on is emerging market debt. Though I'd be more constructive if we get more evidence that the global slowdown underway is not going to be too deep. Emerging markets started hiking early in the cycle, and most of them today are close to or have even finished tightening and are going to start easing later this year. Brazil, for example, is probably close to being done with policy rates now nearly 14%. And a better backdrop in China for now, and broadly weaker dollar, that also helps flows to emerging markets generally. So the fundamental picture there, again, you have to be selective, but the fundamental picture across a number of those countries I think is interesting. I would keep my exposure fairly modest, mainly because we don't know exactly how far the Fed will have to go, which could have implications for the dollar and risk appetite generally. And also there's some political considerations that would make me want to keep exposure a bit more constrained. Brazil's Lula, I think he took a page from Turkey's Erdogan, unfortunately, in the last couple of days, and he was making noises about the central bank. I don't think he's necessarily going to take away its independence, but that sort of job owning is certainly not helpful. But Generally, late cycle, when the emerging market central banks flip from tightening to easing at high starting long-term yields, 
especially if we have a weaker dollar environment. I think that could be another interesting piece of a portfolio as we look at the year ahead. One of the aspects of the mosaic in terms of evaluating opportunity that I'm sure we implicitly talked about, but not explicitly is valuation. And if you go back to, let's just say late 2021, one of the risks I thought that was pretty prominent, and AQR has done some great work on this, they look at the joint richness of stock and bond prices. So certainly stock prices will almost never be as overvalued as they were during the tech bubble. (laughs) That's a tough comp. But jointly, the expensiveness of stock prices around late 2021, along with bond prices that led to very, very negative real yields. So the joint richness of stock and bond prices was a risk. When you look at valuations now, let's just stay with the broad U.S. equity market. How did those hit you? Have we made some adjustments that leave a little bit more margin of safety? Or what's your big picture on the state of valuations in U.S. equities? The rally we got at the end of last year and into January this year got us up to 12-month forward PEs, which are close to historic averages. Globally, we're pretty close to historic averages. I'd say outside the U.S. countries screening cheaper on that basis, Japan, the U.K. maybe. But I find, honestly, that PEs and valuations, to me, are going to be most useful at extremes. When they're kind of around averages or within a pretty tight range to that, I don't find them in and of themselves to be terribly useful in terms of building my thesis. I'd say the thing that probably jumps out at me a little bit more when I think about the U.S. equity market, and frankly, this is true across most markets today, is just what's getting priced in for EPS growth. Last year, U.S. EPS growth a little over maybe 6%. This year, maybe half that. And then 2024 bouncing back very, very nicely and then continuing on its nice, happy trend higher. And the question I'm asking myself is, is the dip this year big enough? And is the bounce going to really be that quick? And to me, that goes hand in hand with the rapid Fed pivot. Is the Fed going to be able to pivot that quickly, provide liquidity to the market, juice up growth again that quickly that you could see earnings growth recover that fast? Possible, but it's something that I would have questions about and I'd want to dig into more. Well, Rebecca, this has been an excellent conversation over the course of an hour. It was first great to learn more about your unique background and getting into the market, but also I'll use the word rigor with which you approach looking at risk in markets and thinking about opportunities in markets. And then the last thing I just wanted to comment, this came up many times during our conversation, is your willingness to just jump in and try new things. I think that's actually quite inspiring for people in our industry. It's very easy to get stuck in one thing and you seem to approach new opportunities as welcome challenges. So that was really great to hear. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. You have such a great, almost photographic memory of the financial market that speaking with you is always a good lesson for me as well. I really appreciated it. There's so much more we could have talked about, too. We could go on and on and on. (laughs) We didn't even dent China today. Goodness. We'll have to do it again. We will save that for next time. And thanks again, Rebecca. It's great to have you on the Alpha Exchange. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. 
If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.